This episode is brought to you by Dixon Resources Unlimited. Dixon Resources Unlimited is a woman-owned business that was founded with the direct goal of supporting municipal parking and transportation programs across the country. Learn more at DixonResourcesUnlimited.com. This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, the world's largest association of professionals in parking, transportation, and mobility. Learn more at parking-mobility.org. Hello and welcome to The Parking Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the $100 billion parking industry and the people that make it go. I'm your host, Isaiah Mao, and this is The Parking Podcast. Views and opinions are my own. Welcome back to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Joining us on the podcast today is Parking Today's Person of the Year, Julie Dixon, founder and president of Dixon Resources Unlimited. How are you doing today, Julie? I'm doing great today, Isaiah. Great to talk to you. Yeah, we'll talk about that award, but I think I just saw on LinkedIn uh, recently another award, maybe a Women in Parking finalist or, or something like that. What is yeah, that Yeah, for the Women in Parking Impact Award, I was selected as a finalist and uh, Andy Campbell from LAS won the award, but it was just such a great honor. And I have to tell you that this award that they sent, it's the closest thing to an Oscar that I'm ever going to receive. <laughs> it is seriously one of the most beautiful trophies. It's so cool. And you can hold it just like an Oscar. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really neat. That's so cool. So one of my passions is screenwriting. And that's my dream is to sell a screenplay one day. So uh, my mom actually visited Hollywood for something to see a family member and got me a world's greatest son Oscar oh. trophy. So, <laughs> so that's, like, awesome. that's the closest I will ever get. But <laughs> no, man, you uh, you know how they have the EGOT, the person that won the oh, that's I- Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, yeah. Tony. You, you're you're working on the parking version. You got the parking today. We got to get you the IPMI Women in Parking. That's awesome. You know what? It's 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 absolutely so flattering to be recognized. I have to tell you, and I and I and I say that really um, truthfully is the fact that. To be recognized by your peer group, it, it's just the most flattering reward that you can receive, especially for somebody. And I know you're just like this too. Your nose is on the grindstone getting the job done. And it's not often that you get to step out in front of that curtain. So it, it's really a privilege to be recognized. And I really do value that and appreciate it. Yeah, no, congratulations. And we both share a common admiration for Mr. Steve Resnick, who did the same for me. So he nominated me for the IPMI parking professional of the year. And you're right, that was just so special to me and to be recognized and to have Steve Resnick actually put together that nomination package, you know, to this day still means so much to me. And I know exactly how you're feeling right now. So congratulations, the year of Julie, for sure. Oh, thank you. And I, oh, the year of Julie. I wish it wasn't the year of Julie with this (laughs) 2020. Yeah, exactly. But we were, our mutual uh, love for Steve Resnick definitely uh, rides hard for sure. Oh, that's awesome. So I know you've listened to the podcast before. So, you know, this uh, first question, you know what I'm going to ask you right now? Got an idea. How I how got into parking. did you get into parking? Yeah, Julie, a great story that I know a little bit about it. So tell us how you got into parking. Yeah, sometimes I feel like a broken record because I tell this one all the time, but I have to tell you, it's a fun one for me. I went to school at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And at the time, UCSB was the number one party school in America. Go <laughs> Nice. And uh, I somehow found my way into the job of becoming a community service officer or a CSO for the university police department. I took that job, honestly, because it was the highest paying job on campus. And it had some pretty cool perks where you got to be on bike patrol or you got to work at the special events, uh, things like that. So I thought that was a pretty neat job. 
And I really took it, I mean, took it to heart. I loved that job so much. And then one day uh, my lieutenant approached me and said, hey, I recommended you for a job at the Isla Vista Foot Patrol. And I said, what do you mean? I love my job here. And when he told me it pays $15 an hour, I said, who do I talk to you? Because at that era, that was a lot of money and it was double what I was making as a CSO. Oh, wow. So yeah, that was like mind changing. So uh, I headed my way over um, to Isla Vista and the foot patrol at the time was a collaboration of UCPD officers and Santa Barbara County Sheriff's deputies. And it was basically a cooperative between two agencies because Isla Vista was the community that was adjacent to UCSB. And at that time, it was one of the most densely populated one square miles west of the Mississippi. And what was happening is because we were the number one party school, the law enforcement was so focused on public safety, life and safety issues with kids falling off cliffs, couches burning in the middle of the street, fire access became a really big issue and they didn't have anybody doing parking enforcement. And so I went over there and uh, was interviewed um, to this day, one of my mentors at the time, Lieutenant Shimwell. And uh, basically they handed me a ticket book and a bicycle and said, good luck. And uh, who knew that, you know, almost 30 years later that I was going to be dealing with what I now know are congestion mitigation issues, curb management tactics, time management, and all of the things that we still work with today, just with the enhancement of technology. And that's really where I cut my teeth on parking, basically as the first parking enforcement officer um, for the Isla Vista Foot Patrol working for the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. Wow, what a story. I, you know, I, I love stories like that. I know we've had Romy Valera, who I'm sure you know, CEO of Pay by Phone North America, but he told his story. He also started as a PEO. Mm-hmm. I started as on-street supervisor, so not quite a PEO, but uh, you know, I believe in leading by example, so I would go out and issue parking tickets. But one thing I found too, when I'm doing training or talking to a client, just I feel it's, you get better, you're more receptive, they're more receptive to hear you when they know you've actually, you've done this, you've been there. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, I really enjoy that, hearing that in your story. And also, so I'm assuming that was, were you working for the university or the, the sheriff's department? That was actually a municipal type of a role? So it was definitely a municipal role. I actually worked for the county sheriff's department. But what's interesting is, I also maintained my role as a CSO on campus. And so it's really interesting because when people sometimes ask me about my work ethic and, you know, Julie, you work so many hours. And I have to tell you, I've just done that my entire career. So I basically, as a full-time student, was managing two jobs, one full-time with the sheriff's department as the parking enforcement officer, and then one part-time as a CSO on campus. So I wasn't really taking advantage of that number one party school opportunity because honestly, I was just out there uh, working and, you know, just loving my jobs. And I think that that's honestly where that passion for parking, that whole I love parking concept really came from, because I really loved what I do, because I think that one of the things that's important about the jobs that we do is how much of an impact our jobs do have. And the fact that it was such a customer service based job and the fact that you're communicating with people all day long. And I think that that's really where that, you know, foundational aspect of educating and informing people, which I always say is one of our basic mottos, our job is to educate and inform. And that's really where it stemmed from was from that really early stages in my career. I I would consider you a very high motor person. I've I've seen your work ethic. I've seen you, uh, 
your writing. I know I just watched Hamilton. How do you write? Like you're running out of time. That song comes to mind. Thinking of Julie, just the content that you put out there through proposals, through parking studies, through RFPs. Uh, it's very, very impressive. But particularly, I've seen your stamp on the municipal world, which I've done my whole career in municipalities. So I've always enjoyed reading what you put out there or working with you on projects because you have that special municipal background. And I know that's been kind of a niche for your firm is working with cities. So what, what, what do you love about working with municipalities around the states? Well, you can't see me right now, but I'm actually blushing and I have a smile from ear to ear to hear somebody like yourself giving me that kind of a compliment. And for the team that we have here at Dixon, it just, it really means a lot because I think that when you really get into that impact with municipalities, it's the fact that we can start to move the needle. Uh, One of the things that we always um, tell folks, because we do a lot of stakeholder outreach, there's a lot of education in our process, a lot of outreach in our process. And we have to tell people about that incremental change and the fact that, you know, the, the challenges that have developed have developed over time. These are not things that happen overnight. And in order to correct them, you have to basically do it gradually. And through that, you have to basically experiment, try things and be able to do it incrementally as you're going to be able to change behavior. Because that's another thing we like to talk about. And I know you'll appreciate this. Parking is usually about learned behavior. And the fact that some of the challenges that a lot of our municipalities experience really come from the fact that people have developed bad habits. And in some cases, they don't know that they're bad habits because nobody's ever really corrected them about them. And so I think that one of the things that I really enjoy the most, especially about our municipal work, is when you can look at the impact that those incremental changes can have. And also one of the things that I find that I didn't realize how much it meant was We do a lot of stakeholder outreach, as I mentioned. And when you have that naysayer in the group, the one who tells you from day one, because I have that happen a lot. They come, they meet me and they say, you're never going to change my mind. This is the way it's going to be. And I don't care. And that gradual engagement where you start to see that shift in mode, that shift in attitude. I have to tell you, it, it really, it means a lot, you know, to somebody in this role when you know that, that through education, through outreach, through information, that you can start to, to shift, you know, those attitudes. And uh, those are some of my favorites because of the fact that, you know, they were going to be the roadblock for us. And I, I, I invite those challenges because, you know, if we can help change, you know, that particular roadblock block or shift it out of the way. I just think that that's how we end up being able to be successful in, you know, some of the recommendations and the, uh, what we call the parking action plan or roadmap for a municipality to tackle. So I think that that's really, there's so many factors involved, but I think that real uh, shift in behavior is something that I really, I think I enjoy the most about what we do. Yeah. And one particular talking about shifts in behavior and working with municipal programs, we both kind of got to work with one was Seaside, Florida. And I just bring that up because that's probably one of my favorite visits ever. It's such a beautiful community. Do you know a little bit about Seaside? I do. In fact, I was able to visit there and this was a real fun internal one that we had because I can't remember the name of the founder, but he was somebody from an um, urban planning Robert yes. Davis or Robert. Yes. Yeah, something like Thank that. you. So um, one of my colleagues was um, newer in her entry into Dixon 
And she was so excited to go to Seaside because of the fact that this was something that, you know, every urban planner has studied and learned about. And so then to go to Seaside and really see what the reality was there, first of all, it is a really cool destination location. And that's one of the best things about my job is that we do a lot of destination locations. And that's always fun to be able to go and visit those places and be able to see them. And then to see, you know, what the intent of that location was to what it became and then how to resolve and solve that, I think was, you know, one of those things where I have to reinforce the fact there are no cookie cutter solutions. We tell people that all the time. I like to talk about the fact that there are cookie cutter problems in some cases, but the fact that you have to look at the specifics, the geography, the demographics, you know, the clientele to really figure out what the solution is going to be. But Seaside, I have to say, was fun too because we got to ride our bikes. They gave us bikes as one of the tools to be able to get around town. And I just thought that was a really fun project. Oh, such, yeah, it's one of the, what do they call it? New urbanism models, one of the first big new urbanist communities. Indeed. And I think, I, I love your team. I think the person you may be talking about is Miss Emily, who I'm very fond of. I think she's got a bright, bright future in this industry. But yeah, Without same thing. Yeah, I was I was blown away. Such a cool community. And another one you've worked on that some people aren't aware of is the historic SF Park pilot program. So I would say most of our listeners are, are probably familiar with the SF Park pilot program, but can you tell us a little bit about the work and what this project was about for those that sure. aren't aware? Sure. So yeah. um yeah, for those that aren't familiar, SF Park was the first federally funded program that focused on congestion mitigation relating to on and off street parking. And how I like to describe it is that SF Park was basically at a time where if you had a widget, a service, a product, a piece of hardware that you thought could influence parking behaviors, that you basically you got to test that through SF Park. And at the time, I was dubbed the sensor queen because um, any parking sensor that was out there, we were basically trying to utilize that to determine occupancy and utilization in the various parking uh, locations throughout the different zones. And uh, it was a really comprehensive program. And I have to tell you, I joke about it because of the fact that the gray hair that I think I have today came as a result of that because the role that um, I played with the company that I worked for at the time was we were basically what I'll call the gatekeeper. We managed all of the vendor solicitations as well as the, um, the vendor agreements and all of the negotiations. And I can't even tell you the dozens and dozens and dozens of contracts everywhere from, you know, $5 million value down to $25,000 value that basically all of the infrastructure that it went in for what was being measured and monitored and managed through SF Park was basically run through our office. And I will say that that's actually the foundation of really how Dixon came to be was um, my opportunity to be exposed to all of that technology and the relationships with all of the vendors and the familiarity with kind of the pipelines and the development of what was coming with the different technologies is really how Dixon evolved. But it's also from a project management standpoint where when I tell you that we had dozens of vendors basically out there on the street, whether it be installation, performance management, um, liquidated damages, all of those factors that go into it, while also making sure that the SFMTA was meeting all of the federal guidelines, whether it was the system engineering management plan, concept of operations, there's a lot that goes into federally funded projects as well as working with basically Caltrans. There were just many, many moving parts. And uh, we also helped to hire all of the personnel 
for the project as well, because the way that the project was funded, uh, basically the personnel would go through the, um, the subcontracting unit, which was our company that would then uh, manage it at the time. It was Serco uh, Incorporated that has a longstanding relationship in San Francisco. But yeah, there were a lot of late nights. And um, I have to tell you also that that's on the solicitation side. Um, the corporate counsel at the time, his name is Robert Lance. I have to give him a shout out. He did so much work on the agreements and the negotiations and uh, being able to work side by side on with him is really where um, my familiarity and kind of mastering of procurement and the legalities and requirements around that. I'm not a lawyer, but I definitely learned from the best. Yeah, especially in California too. So I'm sure you're, you're well equipped to exactly to that process around the country. And you know, I, I've seen the stats. I don't remember them, but I know it, it did. You know, we did see a reduction in search times for drivers, less emissions. Mm-hmm. I think there was an increase in sales tax too. But what, what would you say were the biggest takeaways from the program? Definitely. Well, one of the things I think is really um, one of the biggest outcomes is it definitely proved or demonstrated a, a lot of the Shoops theories, for example. When we talk about, you know, that 85% occupancy threshold, of, you know, when you're near at occupancy, you know, that opportunity to always try to have one or two parking spaces available and being able to use um, the rates and time limits, you know, associated with those to be able to encourage turnover. I think that that whole dynamic pricing model, all of those concepts really, really came from that demonstration of SF Park, a lot of the guidelines that we use today. And I think that some of the really important outcomes, and you touched on those, was we actually saw a decrease in enforcement revenue, and we did see an increase in paid parking revenue, which when we all talk about our ultimate job, that's the goal. Exactly. We want people to follow the rules. We want them to comply. And I think that one of the other things that came out really positively from SF Park was the wayfinding aspect of branding. I think that there have been several programs, you know, over the last several decades that have very successfully branded their programs. But I also think that SF Park did a really great job of that. I like to tell a story of at the time I was living in San Francisco. I'm definitely Southern California born and bred. Uh, But when I was living in San Francisco, I would always go to One South Venice. That was where the SFMTA office was located. And I had this one path that I always took. And when this SF Park sign went up, I'd been living in San Francisco, I think, for three or four years at the time. And one of the SF Park signs went up for a garage. And I have to tell you, me being a parking expert, I never knew that that garage was there until that branded SF Park. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it really demonstrates, though, like what those monikers really can mean, you know, when we talk about parking management. So, you know, we're, we're customers just like everybody else. And I like to tell people that same experience because of the fact that you know, that had an impact on me as a driver in San Francisco to understand where those parking assets were. But I I definitely um, appreciate everything that um, SF Park did because to this day, the foundational aspects of what that program was about, I think I'm seeing them applied all across the country. It's now we just have improved tools and different technology that we can use to help manage it. I'm sure my ignorance here, but I'm familiar with with Seattle, I think like every quarter they change the rates based on data. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but talk about the evolution of the San Francisco. So were they actually doing real-time every meter rate changes by meter, by street, by block, or was it more of look at the data and change it every quarter? Can you tell us a little bit about the history 
Yep. That. So it was it was definitely based on the zone. Is real when you look at the the core design. There was basically, if I remember, it's been a little bit on this, but I think there were seven different pilot areas, as separate pilot areas. But what would happen is is that the rate could increase or decrease based upon the occupancy. And during the time of SF Park, I want to say, because we've had some improvements since then, but I think we were between 60 or 90 days that the rate could go up or down. I know it's, I think, since changed. So I think we're at 60 days now. It might have been 90 days during SF Park. Forgive me, some of the details are a little fuzzy. That was over 10 years ago. But um, the interesting thing, and this is something that I think is really important when we talk about dynamic. It's definitely more of a static change in the respect that that rate increase or decrease was applied to that zone holistically for then that next you know quarter, that next two months. And then you again continue to measure and monitor occupancy to determine whether or not the next time it should go up or down. And it would only go up or down basically 25 cents or in some other municipalities, it could be up to 50 cents. And I think that that's the important part too, is that when you talk about incremental change, if you're going to move that needle, you can't have those drastic moves because that's when you're really going to have that uproar. But when you look at just as many locations that went down as that went up, I think that that's when we talk about that dynamic curve is the fact that when you can highlight that rates can go down, I think that that's the place where you get that um, buy-in, especially from the public, especially from your you know city leadership, is to recognize that you're managing in both directions. And that's that positive opportunity of being you know actively managing the curve is to show that you're monitoring that ongoing occupancy to determine and making sure that you're paying the rate for the location as necessary, whether it be the most popular location or maybe the less desired or more you know, uh, remote location and being able to price according to that. I think what you said though, Isaiah, is important too because it's one of the things that I really um, hit on on any project is understanding the terminology that you're speaking with your customer or with your municipality is when people say dynamic pricing, I always say to people, what do you mean by dynamic pricing? Like, what does dynamic pricing mean to you? Yes. Because I think, yeah, nomenclature is super critical to make sure that they understand that the technology, can it change, you know, up and down every hour? Sure. How are you going to communicate that to the public? What do you really mean about dynamic pricing? So I like to get into that, you know, that wherewithal. And that's truly what you also have to think about is, how do you communicate that to the public is really the key. And this was my one criticism of SF Park, having lived there, is that um, I didn't care what the rate was at the curb, because if I could get a parking space, that's all that I cared about. You know, it wasn't going to be a matter of what I had to pay, frankly, because if I found a curb space, I was going to park there and pay for it and do whatever I had to do because I just needed to get to my appointment. And I think that that's the one thing when you talk about messaging. It's something that you mentioned Seattle that I really appreciate about on um, Seattle's model when uh, the way their signage works so that you understand like if you're in a value zone or if you know there's value pricing after five, I think that that really comes across in their wayfinding sign. I shout out to also the city of Boise. We actually have replicated the Boise model with their um, meter colors and other locations because like the premium parking zone is green and then the next tier pricing is blue. And then the remote parking that's the value pricing is, you know, yellow. And being able to do things like color coding, it helps with people understanding and messaging so that they know what they're getting for their money, basically. Yeah, and I, I, I love, I've been trying to get Mike Etsy on the, on the podcast, but you'll have to mm -hmm. put me in touch with the Boise folks too. And I, and I like the term 
demand responsive pricing. I think that's mm-hmm. maybe what SF Park prefers. But yeah. why, why don't you think, you know, now we're seeing demand-based pricing everywhere, airlines, hotels, right? parking again. You said you're starting to see some of these practices implemented, but we're still not seeing it to scale like, you know, Shoop wants it. What, why right. do you think it's not, why aren't, why aren't more cities doing this? Is it technology sure. still not there? Is it fear, politics, ignorance? What, what do you what do you think? What's your opinion there? There's a lot in there, but the one thing I want to really touch on that I think that often is overlooked in the conversation is the issue of accessibility, is that um, we have to make sure that our downtowns are still accessible to you know everyone in our community. And um, when I say that, it's important because um, we worked once in a community, I won't name it, it's a very affluent community, and they were talking about implementing paid parking. And it got to the conversation about having a dynamic parking model where the people in the room were very affluent, very wealthy. And they basically said, yeah, I'll pay $100 per day to park on the street in front of my office on the street in these locations that we we're talking about implementing paid parking. We're like, yeah, but there's people in our community that can't afford to pay $100 to park in that parking space. And I always use the example of the, the Subway sandwich worker, right? You still want to get a sandwich at Subway during your lunch break, right? Well, we have to make sure that parking is affordable or that we offer alternative means so that that Subway sandwich worker can still come to work and can still afford to come to work. We did a lot of things in this particular program where we worked with being able to get train passes reduced. We introduced a low-income employee parking permit program. We also introduced a carpool program, you know, looking at transit passes, all of those factors. But I also had to describe the fact that maybe that sandwich worker wants to come and get a Starbucks or wants to come and, you know, run in to go to the Apple store or whatever the case may be. We can't outprice the demographics so that it only makes it so that one element of our community can come and visit. So I think that that's something that is not part of the conversation often. And when we talk about dynamic pricing models, we have to make sure that we're thinking about that accessibility component so that everyone in the community can utilize it. And it's the same that goes with technology. Can the technology do it? Absolutely. But when we also talk about having mobile-only zones, there's still um, a, a, a part of our community that doesn't have cell phones and people that don't have credit cards. And so how are we accommodating people like that in mobile-only zones? And I think that those are all things, the directions that we're going in. I absolutely appreciate it. I support it. I love it. But we just can't forget about accessibility and making sure that parking has to be available to everyone in our community and making sure that, again, it's accessible. And I think that that's something that's not often a part of the conversation. Man, such a great point. Actually, or you're writing the Seaside study, uh, I remember you know they were looking at mobile pay only. And, and you guys pointed out the fact that, you know, what makes a lot of these new urbanism towns successful is the diversity, the mixed use. And when parking can only be accessed through mobile only and, and you know, 9% of the population is unbanked, that that's an issue. So uh, that's a great point that we often overlook to make sure we're, we're thinking about that. That's a great point, Julie. Thank you. Yeah, so what, what, let's continue on the municipal thread. So with COVID, I guess, what do you feel are the biggest trends or opportunities for municipalities when it comes to parking in this uh, new reality? Sure. So, I mean, one of the nice things with um, the, our role is that, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and we started to have the shelter in place take place, 
we were able to, you know, help a lot of municipalities to basically turn their programs off or shut down or put them into a hold capacity. Um, and I have to tell you, as, as everybody knows, the spectrum of ways that people have managed parking throughout the pandemic has not been consistent. And I think that that is challenging for the communities that we serve because, you know, one community turned everything off and some are still not doing parking enforcement. Others never turned anything off and maintained everything as it goes. So I think that's one challenge. The one thing I think that was the most prevalent was on the utilization of short-term spaces. And I think that this really speaks to the dynamic curb, you know, curb management aspects of all of the conversations that are being held out there was, you know, before the pandemic, we were so challenged by TNCs and the impacts of Uber and Lyft and our downtowns and the density of, you know, how we're going to manage that. So we were already in the process of starting to deploy a lot of those short-term parking spaces in order to try to get those TNCs, you know, out of the lane. So now it really just focused on food service delivery, pickup services, and factors like that. And we saw a lot of use of temporary signs and the opportunities for um, those businesses to be able to support that. But now the transition has been the fact that outdoor dining moving into the street or into the parking lots. And I'll tell you, this one pains me because I recently visited a pretty major municipality and even the smallest of communities have taken the steps to ensure the safeguards around those parklets, making sure that there's those physical barriers that are out there to make sure that you're protecting those people who are utilizing those spaces for dining or whatever entertainment that they are providing through their business. And to see some of these locations that are just putting up cones or putting up, um, you know, just, you know, little barricades um, that really don't do anything to prevent a vehicle from inhibiting that space. And this takes me back to my red light camera days when I used to do that in between my parking enforcement and what I do now is that, you know, red light camera accidents and things at the intersection is something traffic safety is a really big thing in me. And so when I see on these, you know, streets, these parklets that have been pushed out and don't have the physical barriers, it really, really bothers me. It really, really worries me. But I think that along with the inconsistencies across the country, of how we're managing parking has really caused a lot of confusion for the communities in which we live. Yeah, one of the benefits of on-street parking, people talk about the, of course, the shoot, the revenue that gets put back into the city, the turnover, the, the congestion, but one overlooked one is the protection, the barrier between the yep. cars and the people on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. So when you're removing that and putting people in that barrier zone, yeah, that's something to to think about and it makes me it makes me nervous and i will say i've referred a lot of people to the nacto website because they've got some really great information there and i also encourage our parking managers to be sure that you're working with your traffic engineers on things like this because it's not as simple as making you know i understand we need to keep our businesses our restaurants open the vitality this is all so important but we also you know can't compromise safety but just last week I was at my dentist office and uh, every time I go to my dentist office, she likes to talk to me about parking. They love it when I come in there because it's like, this is the person they can tell all their parking complaints to. But uh, when I asked about, and this particular, I know it's hilarious. And it's always when all the tools are in my mouth, but um, (laughs) in this particular location, the um, dentist office is actually in San Francisco. And yes, I still go to San Francisco to go to my dentist. Long story. 
But um, in this particular case, the dentist office is in the Castro. And the Castro, for those that don't know San Francisco, is a really vibrant uh, community. Uh, lots of restaurants, lots of bars, lots of foot traffic, lots of activity. And um, I actually had taken an Uber and gotten dropped off there. And I was shocked at how all of the on-street parking, practically, I'm going to say the majority of the on-street parking had been transitioned to parklets. Now, understandable because of all the restaurants and activity there. But when I was in the dentist office and I said, hey, how's all this parklet stuff working for you? My, the dentist technician said to me, she says, well, I can't come here to go and eat because there's no place for me to park now. And I said, well, isn't that an interesting challenge? Because that really puts yeah. them in the pickle, right? We yeah. don't have people wanting to take TNCs. People don't want to take transit. And then she has no place to park. So they've now pushed all of this dining out into the street and the people that want to come and visit don't have any place to park now. Yeah, that's a great story. And I'm glad you touched on the other one too. Where Again, I'm on the private side, private operator. So that was the big question of the work from home versus, you know, we know we're going to see less cars parking because the the telecommuting trend, but... On the other hand, less people are going to be taking mass transit because of fear of catching diseases. So they're going to want to be driving by themselves in their own car. So that's the question. Way less people going downtown, but will there be just as many cars? That's, that's, the, right. that's the million dollar question. Now let's talk quickly about Dixon Resources Limited. Just a great firm. I've worked with you all on some projects. I know you've been a consultant on some projects we bid on. So just a Great reputation, great team. Wasn't always the case that it was this big team of all-stars. You had to start somewhere. So talk about that. I love the entrepreneurial lessons learned. You know, you know what, what inspired you to, to start this and, and what were some lessons learned that helped you become as powerful as you guys are today? Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, um, so my whole career, people have always said you should have your own business, which has always been, again, a real flattering comment. And I really appreciated that, you know, feedback. And when SF Park finished, um, you know, that big heavy lift, you know, the, the papers were all being written. A lot of municipalities were coming to the company that I worked with and said, hey, you know, we want to do what San Francisco did, make that happen. And I always have to give her a shout out. Evelyn Sang with uh, the city of Newport Beach. We were negotiating a contract with um, City of Newport Beach to help Newport Beach on a project. And basically, we couldn't come to insurance terms with her. And at the time, I worked for a $7 billion company. And they were basically the big dog. And they were like, City of Newport Beach, you don't want to come to our terms. We don't need to work with you. And Evelyn said, Julie, if you had your own business, I'd hire you tomorrow. And so I said, well, now's as good a time as any. Yeah. <laughs> And so I did. And um, honestly, with just kind of that, you know, fingers crossed, let's see what happens. And I have to tell you that the day I put, you know, my uh, tent pole up, I uh, had people calling, which was really incredible. And um, basically just started working. I will tell you, boy, did I learn a lot about, you know, how to set up a business and just all the legal and accounting stuff and just, you know, getting your corporation all set up and there's a lot to that. And I always put this out there and I will help anybody that asks. And I have is that I'm always willing to give that guidance and then getting all of my WBE certifications for a women, women business enterprise, getting all of those processes going. And uh, it's been really great, just the growth opportunity. And I, I really, I really appreciate you recognizing the all-stars that work on the team too. And I know you've shouted out Emily a few times 
uh, Emily Quatchnitz and the team that work with her as well. I'm just really fortunate that um, we have such a fun team too. And everybody here has drank the parking Kool-Aid. There's no doubt about that. But a lot of the tools and resources that you are even talking about, and I can blush and smile all I want, but it wouldn't even be capable or feasible without all of them on there for sure. Yeah, what a great story. And I got to also shout out Evelyn. She's one of my current clients. I think she's wonderful. What a great team there with, with Carol and Heidi and the, the whole team. The whole of, team. Yeah, such a, such a great client. And I did not know that about your story. So that's, that's Yeah, and in fact, you'll, and she's going to be mad at me for saying this, but I personally think Evelyn should take up a career in stand-up comedy because to this day, I think she is one of the funniest people <laughs> that I've ever worked with. And she gets mad at me every time I say that, but she is hilarious. Oh man, I gotta let her know that next time I see her, I'm gonna ask her for, for sure. t- tell yeah. me a joke, Evelyn. There yeah, we go. she well, she doesn't even try. That's the best part when you when somebody doesn't know how funny they are, and I just I just love it. She's she's just on, and she gets mad at me every time because I've told her from the first day I would never forget that conversation. I can tell you to this moment where I was standing, the pacing around a parking lot in West Hollywood. And the conversation that I had with her, um, because that was the day that my entire life changed. And that's the part I'll never forget that about her. And I hear that too, that, you know, if you have that one big customer, that you have that relationship that's going to support you, that's going to help you get through the early dark times and help you grow. So that's, that's great to hear. And you know what I say, you never forget. I think that's the key for all of us, especially with that work ethic is you never forget. And that's the one thing I think that's important to anybody that I've ever worked with is they know they can call me anytime, any day, and we're going to figure it out. You know, and I, I think that's an important thing. And honestly, I put that out there to honestly, the industry for that matter. And I do get random phone calls, I have to tell you, and I'm always like, how do you know to call me? But it's pretty neat. Because you know, one of the things I was just sharing with an industry colleague the other day is, we're literally all in this together. And I always say there's enough work to go around for everybody. And it's a matter of us all delivering to those standards so that we can all stand proud. Because when one person screws up, it screws it up for all of us. And when one person does well, it helps all of us. It helps move that needle. And I think that that's that collaborative aspect about our industry that I really value. And I really, I love the people that we work with. I mean, I super miss going to conferences. I didn't realize how much that I miss going to conferences, but just that engagement and the familiar faces and just that camaraderie that we have. I think we're so fortunate to, you know, work with the people that we do. And I, and I know you, and I know you recognize that too. Yeah. Even though I'm a extreme introvert, I like to go in my hotel room and lay in bed with the lights off after going to an IPMI <laughs> party or parking today party. But I've been like watching concerts on YouTube it's so strange just seeing all these people together, jam packed, touching each other, yeah. bonding over something. I was like, man, I can't believe that was the world a year ago. But I know, right? Uh, <laughs> well, how about the fact that we used to blow our candles out on birthday cakes, right? Oh, I, yeah. I just, like that that's, one you don't think a lot about. Yeah, that's like one of our podcast guests was having a kid or recently had a kid. And that's what we're talking about. It's like, you know, like the, the millennials, I think we're after 9-11. There's all these like different this this is a new generation of kids, the post-COVID babies yeah. that won't know what a handshake is or a high five and blowing yeah, out candles is so crazy. But All right, back on track. So again, we talked about the word at the beginning. I believe you were going to have this, this big party. You know, it coincided with your birthday, but COVID, speaking of COVID, kind of ruined those plans. So tell us 
what what it, the plan is now what what happened it did so it just so happened that a major milestone birthday for me my big 50 coincided with the pi conference which was also going to be in san diego where i'm based and so we had planned the most epic party and uh, it was going to be on the saturday before Pi started, and uh, lo and behold, the shelter in place uh, came basically the Monday before uh, the party. Everything's been paid for. Everything was scheduled. My garage is full of things for that, and lo and behold, we had to postpone, and because everything's paid for, we've just been rescheduling, rescheduling, and now we're on our sixth date, and at the time, I did actually not know that I had been awarded this great honor from parking today. And so it's been one of those things too, where, you know, you're sitting at home by yourself going, well, that's fun. That's great news. But, uh, it was, I had my, (laughs) yeah, I had my moment of, you know, like kind of depression of the fact that you're not together to celebrate it. But, um, yeah, I'm kind of ready for 20 to 20 to be over, but it's really been tremendous in terms of the recognition that I've received. And I really, I just, it's it's really an exciting time too, but again, this COVID stuff, I'm definitely over it. Yeah, wow! To turn forty and to win that award in the same turn year. Turn fifty. <laughs> let's be straight. Let's say I'm proud of it too. I never thought I was gonna be fifty. Let's be straight. This is crazy. I never would have guessed that. Congratulations! That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate and it. we got a few minutes left, so I want to give a shout out to Swapta. Uh, one of my favorite state and regionals. I know you were what maybe I think you're past president now. Past but, president right now. Yep. Yeah. Give us a shout out for for SWAPTA and what's going on now nowadays with SWAPTA. Yeah. So SWAPTA stands for the Southwest Parking and Transportation Association, and I too really enjoy the regionals, and it is by far my favorite. And uh, one of the things that I think is the most exciting about SWAPTA is the fact that we have such a dynamic, engaged membership, but as well as our board. And uh, our tagline a couple of years came uh, that we, there's a Southwest in every state. So we, uh, even though we're lim- our area is supposed to be the Southwest of the U.S., we've really branched out beyond that. But the thing I have to highlight the most is that when we found out that we were going to um, have to cancel this year's conference, we put our heads together and said, what can we do that's different? And that's when the Swapta swag box oh, came Oh, I love this idea. Yeah. Yeah. So Swapta has always been known for the Swapta swag swap, which is the last part of our conference where there's just tables of all of these goodies and um, things that people have brought from their universities or their cities or their vendors. And there's a fun time where everybody goes out and picks up items and it's a really neat thing. So we took that concept and we basically created a monthly subscription box and everybody should be getting their boxes right about mid month. And every month there's a theme tied in with a virtual um, networking event as well as a monthly educational webinar. And I got to give a shout out to Brandy Stanley because she has been working her butt off and she's literally the one building the boxes, but they're going out across the country. Uh, you can send subscriptions to people. Um, you can basically uh, put them as custom gifts to people. And uh, the vendors have really gotten into it too because it's a different way to interact with your customers. So there are some things coming up in the subscription box, which I have to tell you, you do not want to miss out because it's so cool and some of the fun themes that are coming up. It's a really good time. So I really appreciate that. Swapta has really stepped out of it and really done something unique and different. 
And this is going to continue basically for the entire year. So you don't want to miss out on getting your uh, hashtag swap the swag box. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. With the crazy times of COVID, I love seeing how companies and organizations are, are being creative to still interact with customers. And that's the best example for a state and regional that I've seen. So the swap the oh, swag box. So cool. And Julie, so how can listeners learn more about Dixon Resources Unlimited? So um, so you can go to our website, www.dixonresourcesunlimited.com, and you can find us there. Uh, you can also go on to LinkedIn, uh, find our connection information there as well. I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, the phone's always on, always happy to talk to people about parking. I talk to folks all across the country about their challenges and needs and uh, always happy to make referrals where appropriate and help people however we can. But uh, yeah, definitely looking us up online. You won't have any trouble finding us. Yeah. And I'll also put it in the show notes, the email in the show notes. And Julie, I'm going to call you out. Are you so open and receptive that you will put your contact phone number in the sure. episode show notes. Wow. All right. Yeah, do you want me to say it right now or will you just put it in the notes? I'll put it in, not a problem. I'll put it in the notes. No, that's great. And uh, again, I consider Julie on the, on the Mount Rushmore of parking, oh just, just, a, just a, a great uh, resource and great person to know and a great company to do business. So reach out to the website, uh, DixonResourcesUnlimited.com and connect with Julie and her team. Thank you so much, Julie. Have a great week. Thank you, Isaiah. Thanks for including me. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Please leave us a review and tell a friend about our show. It would mean a lot. This has been a production of Synchronicity Media, produced by me, Isaiah Mao. Our music and score is by Zona. Our show art and design is by the talented Allison Gilly. You can follow us on social media at The Parking Podcast. Or you can find our website with bonus content at parkingcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Are you interested in your parking organization becoming APO, Accredited Parking Organization Certified through the International Parking and Mobility Institute? Or perhaps you're interested in one of your green garages becoming ParkSmart Certified through USGBC? Well, the Parking Podcast is here to help. Our Parking Accreditations Consultants Network will ensure you are matched with the best site reviewer or green garage assessor available for a fraction of the price. Learn more at parkingcast.com consulting. This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, publishers of the industry's only soup-to-nuts textbook about all things parking. It's called A Guide to Parking, and several of our guests from previous episodes have contributed to this wonderful little textbook. Learn more and order your own copy at parking-mobility.org textbook.